Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening to Love Service Wisdom. Thanks for tuning in to this episode where I am in conversation with Avi Gordon. Avi is a social philosopher and the author of the spiritual novel, A Light in the Tunnel. He currently serves as the director of the Integral Yoga Teachers Association in Yogaville, Virginia. That's a global organization with over 10,000 teachers and centers worldwide and in the lineage of Swami Satchidananda. He also is the host of the Integral Yoga podcast and he's taught students of all ages all over the world from Taiwan to Israel, South Korea, and here in the U.S., You can find more about him and his work on his website, alightinthetunnel.com or iyta.org backslash podcast for his podcast. And you can find him on social media at alightinthetunnel. And like we talk about at the end of this episode, he's into the clubhouse too. So you can find him there as well at a light in the tunnel. And this was just a delightful conversation with a fellow yogi, with a parent, with somebody who is, you know, questioning the way we do things and how we live and looking for new solutions and new ways of being. His book, A Light in the Tunnel, is about that. It's about envisioning a positive future for humanity, for all of us. So I think that you'll enjoy this conversation with Avi. And as for me, it is mid-March. Gosh, it's St. Patrick's Day. It's March 17th. And in my own life, it's a year anniversary of the pandemic. I closed my studio. When we first closed, you know, it was like the, where everything has to shut down for two weeks. That was a year ago today. And my, oh my, how much has changed and not changed and how much is different and not different at the same time. And I feel, or I have been feeling a lot of fatigue and I think it's pandemic fatigue and also like trying to do things fatigue, like trying to, I I feel like my, in my own life, I got into a place where the past couple months I felt like I could project into the future and start to plan like I have been, you know, for the yoga school and the teacher training and for different events. And internally, as I try to do that, I'm just running up to an edge that is a no, and it's making it really difficult to decide. And that's not typically a place that I've been in of indecision. I'm in my past in my life. It's quite motivated and definitely a doer and a planner and a dreamer and a visionary and made things happen. And uh, I know you've heard me say over and over again, my great medicine from this pandemic has been slowing down and doing less. And it's still true. It's still true. Slowing down and doing less. So I'm listening internally and am waiting. I guess waiting's maybe the hard part, waiting to make decisions. It's hard for me to wait to make decisions too when I feel like others are waiting to know what those decisions that I'm making will be, especially around the trainings and the offerings. I also feel like intuitively there's something 
new on the horizon that I can't quite see and it's not quite here. And I think if I'm honest, the ask from life is for me to just wait and to continue to hold space for whatever this new, this new, mm, I don't know, this new expression will be. It's almost like this is somewhat of a bad analogy, but I know when I, when friends are struggling with relationships, like, should I be in this relationship? Should I not? And I'm like, well, the relationship's not serving you. And you've been thinking about breaking up for a long time and you're still in it and it's lingering. You're not creating a space for what is properly aligned and right for you to come into your life. So you kind of have to end the relationship so that you can begin to be ready for what is the right relationship for you. So maybe it's the same in my own life where I'm needing to continue to make the space to be ready for whatever the next thing may be that I don't know. But I do know I'll continue to teach because I love it so much. My 300-hour program that I started this past November with 14 wonderful women is incredible and gives me such a deep sense of uh, joy in our connection. We just had our monthly group call um, last week and I recognized for the first time the depth of gratitude I have for them and that in the reflection of having closed my studio and, and not teaching classes and not having community like I used to. If I didn't have them, I'd almost have none of it. And that would be really sad and hard for me. I felt that a lot when I was connecting with them last week. So just so grateful for the 300-hour yoga teacher training and the students. Congratulations to Brittany Borsma. She was on the podcast last year and she was is was a student in my 300-hour teacher training. And she just finished. She just graduated. She's now a 500-hour RYT, registered yoga teacher. And that was a couple year journey for Brittany. And I've loved her friendship and the support that we've given each other and the learning we've had together and just having her in my life. And I can't wait for more. And it's such a delight when students finish and graduate. It's so exciting. So I love yoga is like my um, yoga is like, it's pretty much my favorite thing in the whole world. And when I say yoga, I don't mean yoga poses, though that's a part of it, absolutely. When I say yoga, I mean the inquiry into myself, my connection to reality. What is the nature of reality? What does it mean to be human? What are the heights of human potential? How can I understand my mind and body and inner knowing better? How can I be the best human possible? That's what yoga means to me. When I teach, that's the essence of where we're going and what we're getting at, though it may involve yoga poses or breath work because all of that helps our physical organism, helps our central nervous system uh, deregulate, right? And to de-stress so that I can be more present or you can be more present. We can feel more connected together. I can know what's actually true for me in this moment because of what my body's telling me and the sensations I'm feeling or not feeling and becoming aware of that. And uh, yeah, it can go on and on. So 
more yoga teaching in the future. I look forward to teaching outside here in the Boise community once it starts to get warmer and reconnecting with many of you again. And I'm on the Insight Timer too, which is fun. You can find the meditations from my guidance album on Insight Timer, and I'm going to include more up there as well. I'll also begin working on my second meditation album. Thank you, East Forest, for the production and mixing and mastering and the music, of course, and all the support and all the ways that you give me every day, including coffee in the morning and snuggles at night and walks and dinner and yeah, just endless collaboration and connection. So grateful for you, sweetheart. Mm, mm, mm. And so grateful for all of you. I put my Patreon on hold for now just to give myself a little bit less to do. Not that I was doing too much on there, but you know how it feels to get one less thing kind of scheduled and needed to be done. So that feels great. And love you all. Love you all so, so much. Thanks everybody for your reviews on Apple Podcasts and for subscribing to the show. They will continue to come because I enjoy it so much. And I think that you will love this conversation that I had recently with Avi Gordon. Welcome Avi to Love Service Wisdom. Looking forward to having you as a guest today and diving into a conversation with you. Me too. Thanks for having me, Rada. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, you know, to begin, we'll give maybe our listeners just a little bit of some insight. Well, I guess I've got questions, right? You live at the Yogaville Ashram. How long have you been yeah. there? Uh, this is going into my fourth year now. Okay. Over three years, yeah. Okay. And how long have you been an integral yogi? Actually, just uh, the amount of time that I've been here. So mm. the same length. I, I came for the community mm. because that message just kept on coming stronger and stronger that for myself, I really need to put myself in a, a, a community with more, I don't know, like-minded, positive influencers. Uh, so I did that and I found integral yoga through coming here. I was already practicing yoga, but different styles, not integral yoga. Right. And so were you perhaps looking for an ashram stateside? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Okay. And you found Yogaville and you've been there for four years. Now you're the director of their teachers association, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you're living there with your wife and your children and your pets. <laughs> yeah, we've got a nice big, big clan here. Uh, we, there's a lot of hunting that goes on around here. It's an interesting situation because it's out in the middle of nowhere in Buckingham, Virginia, uh, so to speak. And so there's this ashram and then all around are all these hunting clubs mm. and they all have dogs. So wasn't really my choice, but this, this dog that was just kind of left around was, um, on our porch taking, uh, taking refuge here. And my wife felt obligated to, to take the dog in and then the dog had puppies. So we had eight puppies. We had to get rid of all these puppies and we ended up keeping one. So we've got two of them and oh. then my dog from before. Yeah. So three dogs. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah, and dogs. pets, they multiply at ashrams. 
<laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. I, I, when I was in my younger life, that was certainly a draw for me as well. It never ended up happening, but I, um, I can appreciate the impulse to want to live in community like that. So it's a little fascinating for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I know one of the things that you're interested in, which I would love to hear your thoughts on, is yoga and meditation for children and the current educational system now. And I'm, again, laying on top of that must be the type of schooling that your children are getting there on the ashram, correct? Or do they go to public school? Yeah. So I actually only have uh, one daughter and okay. she's not two yet. So she's oh, okay. a, l- a little too early for uh, for school. Um, but what I will say about this is, well, also I should say that I've been, I was a teacher for a while, you know, before I found, found myself here at the ashram, uh, and taught in a few different countries. So I've been very interested in education for, for a long time. Uh, and then now what I continue to notice more and more is that as adults, we're trying to undo a lot of, uh, maybe what, what we went through as, as children, you know, we, many of us face trauma and I feel that a lot of that was associated with school and different elements, elements of school. Um, so my general like hypothesis and what I'm really interested in, in terms of the future is what if we didn't have adults that were working so hard to undo what was in a way done to them when they were a child? Um, what if when you you say done to them, what do you mean? Well, I just, I mean, like, you know, you have to wake up at this time. I mean, right, right off the bat there, like I find it as such a success to just not need to, to wake up from an alarm, you know, that, that, that sleep is valued as being as a healthy, as much of a healthy thing that I could do in my time as anything else. And then having freedom of choice, um, that I can explore, what I want to be doing with my time, uh, the, the, um, that I'm not forced to compete with my friends in a way for who's getting a better grade, who's impressing the teacher more, um, all of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably go on and on about it, but I mean, generally speaking, I'll, I'll kind of sum it up as this, is that, you know, I think often the message that we receive is that life is hard and life is a struggle and we kind of have to get through this thing. And what I've discovered and what I try to, you know, remind myself more and more is that this is an opportunity. You know, this is a playing field. You know, what do I want to do with this opportunity of my life? And that's the message that I feel like maybe we should be um, handing to our children. Yeah. Fostering, their innate gifts and talents, fostering connection versus competition, a respect for the natural world, the study mm-hmm. of their inner being versus just memorization and regurgitation, right? Yep. Yeah. That, that's it. That's it. <laughs> My daughter, I have a 17-year-old daughter. She goes to a school called One Stone which is a privately funded public school here in Boise, Idaho. And it's awesome. It's one of the, it's like a 
like a, a school that you'd make a documentary about. And there may be, there already are some, but it's student led or they're not even called students. They're called learners. There's no teachers. They're called coaches. The curriculum is learner driven. There's a board for the school that's mostly students and there's no classes. It's just like immersions and experiences. <laughs> And yeah, I'm so fascinated by this. And there's so many great examples, I would say, of, of people doing extraordinary things in education. But for you yourself, you know, what have you noticed um, about the difference in her education versus uh, maybe yours? I mean, did you have more of a traditional education when you grew Yeah, up? I had a very traditional education. I grew up in Florida and went to public school there. But Mine was different in the sense that starting in second grade, I was put into gifted. And so I was in the, the like quote unquote gifted program all the way from second grade through 12th grade, you know, with AP classes and things like that. And I noticed that the education I was getting in the classroom in the gifted program was way different than my peers in the classroom next door that were sitting like in those little desks with the like little seat desks, you know, that were all in rows, rows and yeah. rows of seat desks. And you couldn't get up and you're staring at a chalkboard the whole time. In our program, we were at tables and we were having conversations and we could get up and we could ask questions and we could explore and we could move around. So it was much more like critical thinking, creativity based versus the memorization. I remember in high school, maybe it was like 11th grade. I took my first just regular class. I had to take, I don't know what it was like, um, politics, some kind of politics class. And it was just, again, the regular one, cause I needed it for whatever was happening. And I remember, oh, maybe it was economics. I remember going into the classroom and feeling inherently tension all through my body. Like I was like, like locked, like locked in a cage was the sense that it gave me. And that was, I had that one for one semester in one grade, right? And so if you were to extrapolate that to all of the grades, 12 years, that inner tension that you feel daily, daily, almost all day, what that creates, right? Like that's kind of the question you're exploring or wanting to undo, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And I'm very interested in habit too. And so my feeling is what happens is that, you know, we go through these formidable years feeling, feeling caged up, feeling locked. And then now I'm an adult and now I do have the freedom to make my life what I want to make it, but I'm not used to the freedom. I haven't been practicing, mm -hmm. right? Like it's all about practice. And if I haven't been practicing using this freedom that I have, I'm probably going to go back to what's comfortable for me. And then it becomes a cage that we lock ourselves in. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I was just chatting with a uh, old friend, Camille. She's an entrepreneur in Florida and she's a homeschooler. She's got six or five or six children that she's homeschooling. And I thought it was interesting that she just said, I'm raising entrepreneurs. And I was like, mm. oh, then that kind of goes along with what you're saying. Like a free thinker, I can do what I want. What do I, what, what's motivating me? What's outside of the box? That's it. That's it. 
<laughs> well, how do you, how do you, have you experienced how yoga and meditation for children facilitates that type of learning and growth? Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. Like even in the world of yoga and meditation, there are so different, so many different types and kinds and facilitations. Um, I mean, overall, I'd say from my experience, it's extremely positive. Um, but, but even then, right. Like I'm very much a proponent for more freedom in yoga and, and meditation. Uh, I've heard you speak about Lauren Roche and yeah, I've, I've heard him as well. And, and, and I love that he emphasizes the freedom of, of really meditating your way. Um, because again, it could be this other container that, you know, meditation is, is this sort of box. And if I'm not doing it right, then it's not meditation. And same thing with yoga. So yes, so positive, but, um, again, it, uh, there's always more. <laughs> yeah. What's coming up for me now, as you say, that is parenting, right? Mm -hmm. Raising children is this balance of freedom and boundaries too. It's not like it can be boundaryless or containerless, and the children actually can thrive and find a sense of safety in the known knowns. Exactly. I'm, I'm really glad you actually brought up that point. Um, so the way that I, I look at it is, yes, safety is number one, right? How much freedom can I give while maintaining safety? That's, mm. that's my outlook, right? So I want to create a fence for my daughter that keeps her from harm. Um, and within that fence, she can explore, uh, however, however much she wants, you know, I was, a, a PE teacher for a little while. So I would do like gym class. And, uh, my, one of my favorite, my favorite parts of that job was that I, I got to do recess too, you know, for the little ones. And so I'd be out there on the yard and I'd be the only adult there. And there are all these kids that are just running all over the place. Right. And it, it was just, it was, it was so fun to take this mentality there and see how it works. So essentially I want to be like, I don't even want to exist for them, mm. you know, but, but I do, and I can contribute to the environment by stepping in here and there when I feel that I can, you know, lift it up. If, if two, uh, two children are fighting, right. And they, they need someone to, to come in and remind them of kindness or, whatever it is, that's, that's the role that I play. So it's like art, you know, coming in here and there. But what I, what I notice happen a lot is essentially it's a power. And so the power gets overused and every little thing that a child does that I don't like, I'm going to come in there and, and fix it. And um, yeah, so it's art. That's mm -hmm. all that I can say, say about it. It's art. And it's, it's, intuition of, of when I'm going to insert myself and, and when I'm going to allow it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Listening to that too, I'm getting this sense from the children's point of view of knowing that the authority figures there, right? The authority figures on the fields and how much this, for them, it's a dance as well of like, I can, I can, I can play in these ways and explore in these ways but I also know that if something happens, Avi's, Coach Avi's going to step in or I could go to him and say, hey, I need help with this or that happens. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a relationship. And then, so I think you're also earning credibility with them is, mm. is the point. Like, right. If you're disciplining too much, then your word doesn't mean anything because it's like, oh, they're just telling me to do something again. But if you use it kind of sparingly, then when you do use it, they're, they're, the chances of them actually taking it in, uh, I think, are much greater. Yeah, I could see that for sure. It feels like now the greatest challenge with children growing up is screens and screen mm -hmm. time and all the exposure. And now even with school, because of the pandemic, having moved to the home and needing to be online and children, I've got a, a nine-year-old as well, who's in his Zoom meetings all day with his classroom, with his classmates, his teacher, or looking up this or that or online. And, and um, I, in, in our sphere with him, the younger one, that's the inflection point. That's the sore point for everybody is he wants to be on a screen all day and we have to steer him away from it. And the kids are being isolated. And so it's this weird thing compared to when I was growing up. I had lots of brothers and sisters. I saw that you were the middle of five. I was the middle of seven. So there's children Oof. everywhere and plus kids in the neighborhood and school kids. And now I feel like my sweet little son is pretty isolated. Like he doesn't play in the neighborhood. My sis, my, his sister's a lot older. And now he's not even having the interactions of his classmates. So it's just screens to say that. He wants to watch a YouTuber play Minecraft. Yeah, it's, it's a big one. And I, I struggle with it myself. It, just last night, my wife and I were having a conversation about the television and whether or not we, we want to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really tricky. Um, you know, I guess my outlook is one of, of balance if, if that can be um, attained to a certain degree. Uh, and that's and that's the message that, you know, the screens are okay. They serve a purpose. The technology is amazing. Like I wanna be in awe of the technology. I am in awe of the technology because it's, it's like magic <laughs> for many mm -hmm. of us that you and I are still, you know, doing this right now, having this conversation and, um, and you know, playing with other children outside is great. And I don't want to lose, lose faith in that either. Like it can often become this better or worse thing, you know, like playing Minecraft is better than being on the playground. Uh, you know, they're just different. And more and more, I just try to give it up to the higher power that, that I'm a limited human being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because like you said, the, the, the childhood um, that is being experienced now by most children is very different than the way it was for us. And it's so hard to compare. Um, and I, I don't think you really can, like it's, it's popular to, it's popular to just make it into a negative thing a lot and say, Oh my gosh, like, everything is going to be a disaster. You know, um, I think it's, it's more, yeah. <clears throat> that is the existential threat for me. Just comes to how you were saying how we were raised in school and then the adults that that turned us into. I worry about how our children are being raised and the adults that's going to turn them into because of 
their exposure to screens and technology. I do definitely worry about it. Or just like my 17-year-old, I love her to death. She's an amazing human being. <coughs> Excuse me. But she mumbles and you can barely understand what she's saying. And what goes through my head is like, is this because she's lacked conversation? Because they're texting? Because they're emojiing? Because they're they're feeling like, like when we were kids, we would get together and hang out, right? And play and do whatever. But now there's the interface of phones, texting, messaging, social media with before or in replacement of actual humans hanging out. Yeah. I, hmm. there's a lot there. Uh, I would say hmm, that in, in a way, I think we have to be careful or I remind myself that I need to be careful um, because it's it's too complex and it's also easy to kind of um, put our experiences up on a pedestal mm. that because that's what we know right and I think that this, that's exactly what's happened in education to a certain degree because all of us or most of us have gone through a traditional schooling so and we've turned out fine right like we're great so I'm going to put my child through that same, same schooling too. Uh, and in a way it holds us back from, from being better because of just the comfort of, of what is known. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I suppose for me, the energy that gets me going inside when I think about the children in that way is and projecting into the future is recognizing it totally has changed and it's absolutely different and my fear, I don't have it a very, a lot, but I can, I know it's under the surface is dystopian versus utopian. And I know you wrote your book, A Light in the Tunnel, about a utopian future. Did it include technology in the same way? Yeah. So well, it's not utopian, I would say, because I, I don't believe progression ever ends, mm -hmm. right? So there's never, there's never a peak. And I feel that we have to fall in love with progress itself. That, you know, enlightenment is a buzzword that gets thrown a lot, especially, you know, in my ashram community. And, and yeah, that's the circles. finish line. That's the yeah. trophy. Then, and I'm just from, from my experience, there is no finish line. No. Right. And that e even those individuals that we consider enlightened, they seem to be so stable but I feel that there's even fluctuation that happens inside of them. Just their low points are still so high that it seems like, like it's mm. stable. But I think mm. a, a part of the human experience is fluctuation. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and the last part that I'll add, this is actually something someone else said to me that gave me great, great faith. And I've observed since hearing it, um, and just taken in whether or not I feel that it's true. And that is that truth, truth itself is like a magnet that's pulling us toward it. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and I really believe that. And that doesn't mean that it's just like a trajectory that's just like going straight up. You know, there's up and down and up and down and up and down. 
So a but, trust, you know, a trust in a way. You've got trust. Yes. And also like a feeling that I, trusting is part of the work, right? Yeah. Like th oh, yeah. this world doesn't need more humans that are very afraid and and and, and scared. So I, I don't want to, truth is ultimately like my allegiance is truth. And I don't only want to be like looking up and, and have rose petaled uh, glasses on. So I want to see what is real. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very, very real to see that we are progressing uh, in, in many, many ways. Yeah. 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 And thank you for that reminder of the pull towards the truth, because I do agree with that also. And just recently through my own process have recognized the, how should I say this? the greater call for more surrender. And so instead of resistance to the fear of the potential dystopian future, it's, you know what? I don't know. And worlds are colliding and sacrifices are, are being asked to be made and will continue to be made. And I feel like this time especially has, uh, we're in like a like a unraveling and a reweaving together of different paradigms. And it feels really kind of pretty scary. And it also, there's this, there's an element of like newness and hope. And I just recognize within my own self, I have to trust more and I have to surrender more to what can feel like an other that can feel different. And I feel like a lot of that integration actually has to do with technology. You, you said the other. What do yeah. you mean exactly by another? Yeah. Well, other othering or polarization is like them over there, that, and then there's me and us over here, right? And so instead of resistance to a perceived other, them, it's the two coming together, us over here and them over there to create a new unified pathway together that's going to have inherently parts of both. Mm. Yes, well said. Uh, hmm. I just need to take a, a second and, and take that in because it, it's so it's so powerful. You know that dynamic, yes, between the individuality and and the other. But again, what is the truth? Mm. For me, the absolute truth is that we're all connected. Exactly. Right, and the pandemic has um, given us a great example of that. We are all connected. Like we, I like to say, we are teammates, whether or not we want to be. Precisely. Mm, I got chills. That's great. Oh yeah. Bing, bing. <laughs> we are. Yeah, that's just, we are, we are, you know, when someone creates an invention on the other side of the planet, that's revolutionary. It benefits everyone. You know, that's, that's, that's the way that it is. So it's like, yeah, part of, again, the education, the psychology that was, that was imparted in me. It was so much about competition. I talk a lot about, I write a lot about competition. Conquerors and losers. Yeah, exactly. Conquerors and losers and, and successes and failures. And um, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm just, I, I feel like I'm in recovery actually from that still in my life, that psychology of competition. And I see it prop up all the time. 
Um, but to your point too, like just because I feel that we're all connected and we're all in it together, doesn't mean that there isn't a certain uniqueness and value to the individual that can be celebrated as well. You know, it's both and. It is, it is both and it is, and it's all wrapped around together. Yep. The individual, the personal is kind of in the center of the familial and that's surrounded by community and then that's surrounded by global. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to circle back to surrender because that's been huge for me too. It's like this letting go and then also feeling that by doing that, I am being the example that I hope more human beings will do themselves. It's just to chill out, just to relax, to let go to this experience that we're having, mm. allow everything to be okay, that more people feeling like that genuinely, mm. that's what's needed, I feel. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I have a, a deeper relationship with um, Guadalupe or Tonantzin from Mexico, from the Aztec culture. She's... She's a great avatar there. And I went on my only pandemic trip in December down to visit her sites again and be within her energy. And there was a prayer that we were using that's Holy Mother Tonantzin, teach me your peace and your surrender. Holy Mother Tonantzin, teach me your peace and your surrender. And Tonantzin is another name for Guadalupe. Do you know her story? I don't. Oh. You mind if I share? Please. So Guadalupe, in the 1500s, the, the Spanish were, it was genocide all through Mesoamerica, through the conquistadors and the Spanish Inquisition that was there. So millions of Aztecs were being murdered, much like the genocide in North America. And they weren't converting to Catholicism for many reasons, of course, because they had their own culture and traditions. Mm. And in the mid-1500s, an apparition appeared to an Aztec peasant named Juan Diego in Mexico City, in the center of Mexico City, at this hill of Tapayac. And imagine just like the Virgin Mother appearing, right? It's like an apparition image and saying to this peasant, Juan Diego, go to the bishop and tell him to build me a church here. And he, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the story. He's like, okay, I'll try, but they probably won't believe me. So he goes to where the bishop is and the bishop sees him, doesn't believe him and kicks him out. And the next day, Juan Diego, he's taking his same route on his way in the morning. And she appears again as essentially, how did it go? And he says, well, he didn't believe me. And she says, okay, well, you need to tell him again. So then he goes back another time. And the bishop says, I don't believe you. Bring me proof that this is happening, that this woman, that the virgin mother is appearing to you. And so another event comes when she appears to Juan Diego's, Juan Diego's uncle who is ill and saves him. And then the next day, he's trying to kind of like sneak around and not see Guadalupe because he hasn't got the permission yet from the bishop and she finds him anyways and appears. And he's like, you know what, I'm having a hard time because the bishop doesn't believe me. 
and I don't think this is going to work. And she says, well, go to this top of this, go to the top of this hill and pick all the flowers that are there and put them in your tilma, like a poncho and pick them up in your tilma and hold them all closed until you go to the bishop. And this will be your proof. And so he, he does what she says, goes to the top of the hill and picks all these flowers and puts them in his tilma, then goes to where the bishop is again. And then when he finally gets to see the bishop again, he opens up his tilma and out fall all of the bishop's favorite Spanish roses from back home onto the ground. And as these roses are falling out down his tilma, his poncho, comes the image of Guadalupe just appears on the tilma, on the cloth, on the cloak of him, what he would see when she would appear to him on the top of the hill. And so this image of Guadalupe is what hangs in the Basilica today in Mexico mm. City. So the original image from 500 years ago plus is still there. And then when the Aztecs saw the image, it contained their symbolism. So when they looked at it, they said, oh, you want us to follow Catholicism. And that's Catholicism? Sure, we'll do that. And the Aztecs then converted to Catholicism as Guadaluparians, essentially. And then the, the Catholics would look at the same image and see their symbolism in it. So it contained this perfect balance of what both cultures needed, the Aztecs and the Spanish, to blend together under the mm -hmm. guise and power of Guadalupe, who brought them all together. And in out of that, we created, or they created the mestizo culture, which is basically a blending of the indigenous and the Spanish, right? Like whole new blended culture came out of that. And that's what's in Mexico City or in Mexico today. Whereas in North America, we just had basically pure genocide to reservations. And there isn't and hasn't been a blending of mm. the cultures together. And so I just think mm. of her as such a great example. Holy Mother Tonantzin, teach me your peace and your surrender. Like for the Aztecs to say, we surrender, we're going to blend with you. We can make this happen. And then they did. It's just so powerful to me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so powerful because it, it feels like such a foreign mindset. Um, like, oh, I'm just going to surrender and and let go and take on this other thing. Like, <laughs> like that's a big, that's a big ask. <laughs> it's a huge ask. Um, but with, with their no. trust in her, they were able to do it. They were able to do it. The Aztec name is for her was something like Texeltacuipue, which means she who rides on an eagle of fire from the region of light. Mm. And they said that to the Catholic bishop and the Catholic bishop said, oh, that sounds like Guadalupe. So <laughs> that's her name became Guadalupe because they already had a Guadalupe. Hmm. Yeah, I'm very interested in, in the ability to take those kinds of leaps, mm. you know, leave things behind, totally change my life up, do something different. You know, what does it take to do that? Well, you did it when you moved to the ashram, correct? I've done it a few times in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I once packed up my car and, and just started driving and didn't know 
it was just this challenge. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Uh, and I've lived abroad in a few different countries, which has been like that too, because I'm just, okay, I'm here now. I got to get used mm-hmm. to it. Um, so taking the leap. Um, taking a leap. Yeah. And that was more for my twenties, I would say. I mean, I still want to be able to do it now, but I, I sense a, a transitioning period. Uh, but it was very appropriate then, I think, to explore in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. What's the transition that you're sensing? Well, just now having a family and um, being more invested in the container for others, really more than my own need to um, challenge myself. I think like I, I just there was so much of just getting that out of my system that yeah. I needed to do. Yeah, it's like stages of life, right? When we're younger, yeah. it is that exploration because you're in the inquiry of who am I? What do I want to do? Where do I want to be? What is my calling? What resonates with me? What do I like? What mm-hmm. do I not like? Yeah. And even just the fact that you, I mean, I guess my question is what, having grown up the way you described in school, where did you get the fortitude to be like, no, I can just go and get in my car. Hmm. I don't have to, I'm stepping out of the, out of line here, out of the groove. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually. It was a progression, uh, but I'll share one event that happened to me that was of great influence. So uh, I was actually in, I went back to school again for a master's and I was teaching special education in Manhattan at the time. Um, and finally kind of came to this decision that like, okay, I'm going to make a career for myself as a teacher. That's what I'm going to do. So I felt a lot of pressure to, to choose because I had already been kind of outside existing outside of the box um, more than maybe most of my friends and, and family. Uh, but over one summer, I, I was taking uh, a bunch of teenagers on uh, a tour of, of Europe, uh, Europe and Israel. And part of that tour, we went to some of the concentration camps. Uh, and we were in Poland and Auschwitz. And I was standing on the field where the rubble of the gas chambers was. And where so many of you know my ancestors, terrible genocide was committed right there. And I'd been hearing about this my whole life, um, just this event. It was, it was very important for my parents to uh, instill in me, you know, the history of this event and all that. So it was very familiar. But for the first time, I think I tried to eliminate any hatred or animosity that I felt towards the Nazis, toward anyone, and simply ask the question, how did this happen? And I just like opened up to the universe to give me an answer. Like, how did this happen? Please give me an answer. And the answer came that it was conforming, uh, social pressure to fit in. That that's why this was able to happen from so many people that just wanted to fit in and blend in and do what other people around them were doing. And I saw right away that there's a lot of that in American culture too. It wasn't just in Germany. There's, there's a lot of that. So once I saw that, I was kind of lit by this fire um, that I need to use my life to 
do what feels right intuitively to me, not, not because anyone else says so feeling very much that people, you know, using words that other people are using, um, and conforming leads to terrible things. So yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> but then fast forward, you're living in an ashram where there are rules and regulations and agreements. Hmm. Yeah, I can't seem to get away from that totally in my <laughs> life, but more freedom here than mm -hmm. than anywhere else. I mean, just the fact that our community stops at at noon every day and we all meditate together, oh. and and just like the the awareness of the individuals that I'm surrounded by, people that are really investigating truth and what's the what's the meaning of this whole life thing. Um, that's yeah. a treat. That's yeah. a treat. I feel like you're touching on an important point to Avi in the recognition of conformity and where that can lead us astray. And that's, it's like a razor's edge against that conformity and surrender that we were just talking about. And I feel like what's been up so much this past year that's caused so much social discord is those that are so afraid of repeating, let's say, something like um, the Holocaust because of what's happening with COVID and what it means for masks and if you should get the vaccine and this global takeover, like that conspiracy mindset of like can't conform, though while they're saying can't conform, it's conforming to that paradigm that's being fed through the conspiracy mindset. And on the other side, you know, it's like the big finger pointing of like, who's the mm -hmm. bigger, the bigger sheeple now that you're wearing a mask for the greater good to protect them from COVID, you're also conforming. And what does yeah. it mean? I mean, that's just like, it's such a hot topic. Yeah. Yeah. I just think we should mind our own business a lot more than we are. <laughs> you know, basically like it comes down to, I mean, obviously there's a place for social commentary and being invested, especially if it comes from a place of love that I want what's best mm. for uh, everyone else. But I kind of, I see this other pandemic going on where we're totally obsessed with the external mm. and other people. And I'm just living my life judging, 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 judging all the time. And it's really used as a distraction for going inside and remembering that there's always more work for, for me to do. And that the best thing I could do for the world is to continue focusing on that work. On your own inner work. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's, it's a distraction for sure. And it's, uh, it's gosh, I just have a lot of sympathy for everybody because it's, it creates such a, um, hmm, a heaviness and a chaos. It's hard too now because there's not one narrative where everybody's like, yeah, what's going on is this. And we're all agreeing on it as this. That's not happening. And so just, I guess, encounter to like how we were raised in school where it was like, a is the right answer. There's one right answer. And we were conditioned to think that there was one right answer. And now we're living in a world where there absolutely isn't that. And people are freaking out and they want to know the plan and they want to know the answer. Yeah, it's control. 
it's control. We want control so badly, I think, humans. Uh, and that's what the surrender is about. Like, mm. na nature just doesn't work that way. Like, we can't predict the future. We have no idea what's going to happen. If we all reflect back on the course of our lives, like, there's no way that we could have uh, planned what or predicted what what has happened to us. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that's that's lost uh, a lot of times out of a need for trying to make nature into something that it really isn't. Yeah, I was just musing on this the other day within myself of like the like planning is a mark of intelligence or higher intelligence. Like going back to like we all learned about the Romans and how the Romans had the Spartans who are like this first um, kind of like organized system of like infiltrating and battling and they dominated in Europe because they had a plan, right? And then that, that plan made it so that they were able to win. And it feels like it's again, like kind of like a double-edged sword or a paradox where planning is needed and is intelligent and it gets in the way of what's true and real and in this moment, yeah, yeah, exactly. Another place I think for balance and and meeting in the middle. There's validity on both sides, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with planning. First of all, planning is just another way of experiencing the present, right? So there's no way to get out of the present. Wouldn't you say though that or, when yeah. you're planning, it's the past projected forward? Like I'm able to plan yeah. from what I've known, and I'm taking that overlay and saying this is how it's going to be in the future. And this is how I'll navigate it then. Yeah. Well, the only difference is like, I don't know, see the humility part mm. has to be there. And I think mm -hmm. actually having the humility part will make for much better planning. Like totally. that's my hypothesis a little bit is that if you get too stuck in your plans, right, there's no flexibility there. It's rigid. Uh, it's dead. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's not going to be a plan that works the best plans are the ones that are super malleable. Yeah. So it's almost like you got to have the team that you have a symbiotic connection to where you can all pivot simultaneously in the moment of like, this isn't going according to plan. What's plan B? <laughs> <laughs> I, exactly. I, I feel yeah. like what's happening now too, because we were conditioned the way that we were of like one right answer, plan, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. And we're thrust into this time period of the pandemic where it's everybody's asked to alter and change a lot about their way of life and knowing what some are attempting to find solace in is knowing the plan, which is the conspiracy theory stuff, when probably there's not one person in charge of anything. There's lots of people trying to figure different things out on different levels, and there isn't one big plan. But when you feel like you have the special knowledge that I know and they don't know, it gives you like a momentary feeling of feeling better, but probably a continuous feeling of not feeling better because what's living inside of you is energy of separation. I really appreciate one thing you just said there that it, it, you feel better in the short term, but the long term uh, is kind of devastating. And I think that is... Uh, that is what's happening a lot that we take short-term gains for long-term um, downfall, you know, and uh, that's a good point. Yeah. 
Another comment that I'll make in terms of the like the clean numbers, honestly, I feel that that's the reason why so many people are invested heavily in money because mm-hmm. it's it's clean. Like it's easy to look in, in my bank account and see high numbers and equate that with victory, right? Mm-hmm. It's there's not the, there's no equivalent for like uh, just peaceful thinking and well being and, <laughs> and 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 you know uh, friends and family and those things that you can't put on priceless. a spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah. They're, 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 they're priceless, but no less valuable, probably more valuable. And it's not to say that money doesn't hold value too, but I think it's just been inflated to a place that's, you know. I struggle with this at myself as well. Just last week, I was having a conversation with Christian, my partner about this. And, you know, I said, you know, it just goes back to more money, more problems. And it feels like that's true. I can't get around the fact that it feels like the more money you have, the harder things get in different ways. I wish I didn't have that imprint, but from my experience of when I've had less, I can feel really good when I don't have tons of money. All of my needs are met and I feel quite satisfied. I'm definitely taken care of, but it feels like the problems start to encroach encroach when there's more of the grasping for more. And then once you get money, it's the whole loop around, well, now what do I do with it? How do I protect myself now that I've got it? What's the best way to invest it? How do I pay as little taxes as possible? On and on and on and on and on and on. That creates like another series of problems. Yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, that I think often the goal is just money in itself. And there's not a lot of consideration of what what do I really want to do with it once once I have it. And and because I don't have a clear vision on the, per- and really it comes down to the purpose of my life. Like, what is the point of my life? Like, what do I want to do with this time that I have here? Like money can be a part of that equation, but I should have a plan of how I'm going to utilize that resource, you know, mm. one, once I have it, not just accumulating more and then, or just like keep on getting lots of nice things to uh, feel that I'm winning again. I don't know. This is almost like we just, we have to go deeper. We have to go deeper. I'm winning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Those are like little blips. They're like, like high, high point blips. But I often share in my teachings that, you know, bliss is actually a neutral feeling. Hmm. It doesn't feel high. It feels really calm and steady. That's the feeling of bliss. That's such an Ananda, just like cruising. Yeah. So actually funny that you say Satchitananda because uh, uh, Swami Satchitananda is the one who uh, created Yogaville here where I live. Oh. Uh, he, he also opened Woodstock. Um, you know, they were getting ready for like a crazy event mm-hmm. and they, they called mm-hmm. him in. He was only living in the States for a while. And they're like, we need someone to, you know, kind of calm everyone down and set the vibrations right so he he opened it up and and really did that by many accounts of the experience that people had there um pranams pranams yeah but what he said yeah and so his thing is peace he Mm. says peace is my god right oh beautiful there um, it is to reference to reference what you said about about bliss so it's this very neutral state. He actually said, you know, if God comes to disturb your peace, you know, tell God to go away. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's such an ananda. It's sat, truth, chit, consciousness, ananda, Nadia. bliss. Yeah. yeah. Truth, consciousness, bliss. And bliss, people think, is is heightened ecstatic states of winning. And it's just not that. Yeah, you know, I've come to uh, to realize that, like, it wasn't enough when I was younger, like the word peace, right? Like, mm. oh, what's peace? Like, that's that's for the birds, so, so to speak. It's like a weak type of thing. And then now it's it's my favorite thing in the world to just feel peaceful. And it, like, it's almost like the human... Uh, the human brain wants there to be something more than that, but there really is is nothing yeah, like that's just the best. Yeah, peace for me is fullness. Hmm. Yeah. Fullness with with um, how else might I describe it? Like a sense of grounded expansion, calm acceptance, clarity. It it's like. It's, yeah, it's like a perfect alignment. Like there's no static or friction one way or the other. It's just like, I don't know if that makes sense. I think those are great words to describe it, actually. Um, one of my favorite ones is acceptance. Mm. It's just, it's so sweet if I can accept. And there's this part of me that doesn't want to accept. You know, it's like rebelling against it. No, there's so much that needs to be done. There's so many things that are wrong <laughs> in the world. You can't accept. <laughs> Totally. Yes. That's the paradox of it. It's accepting what is and acting at the same time and being part mm. of the world because we are in human form. We do have bodies and brains and nervous systems and hearts and we can accomplish and be a part of so much and contribute while accepting. That's it. Like accepting is the foundation. And then now I can move from there with humility doing what I feel like is, is good work, knowing that I could be wrong. <laughs> and we often are. Yeah. Yep. Well, fantastic. Avi, I've loved this conversation so much. It could go so deep in so many ways, I'm sure. If people were to find more about you and your work and what you're, what you offer, where would they go? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, you can visit my website, alightinthetunnel.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram too, alightinthetunnel. Uh, on Twitter, Abraham Gordon. So yeah, just search for me, Abraham Gordon, Alight in the Tunnel. And uh, on Clubhouse now too. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about that. What is the you... Clubhouse? <laughs> I, 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 heard about, I heard the Clubhouse first back in like November and I was like, eh. I don't want to get involved with something else. And I kept, was keeping it at the periphery. And like three weeks ago, Krishna, somebody sent me a clubhouse invite, a text from a friend. I finally got the invite, right? And 10 minutes later, Krishna walks in and he's like, have you heard of clubhouse? Duncan, his friend, Duncan Trussell, Duncan's on clubhouse and just inv invited me. And I kind of put my head in my hands and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do clubhouse. I don't want a clubhouse. Yeah. <laughs> and then I did. And I got on it. And then my profile literally says here, and it's somebody raising their hands, like present. And I pop into it and it feels like, I don't know, another thing. Am I just being a curmudgeon? It's totally another thing. Uh, I haven't gotten felt like a, such a addictive pull towards something in this way. Are in you a very, very that? long time. Are you enjoying the addictive pull? Are you talking? Are you listening? Am, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, but I also have to like really watch it <laughs> uh, because I've got a lot of other, th other things going on. But I'm super excited about it, Rada. Like, tell me, I've, sell like, me on I, it because I'm not sold. <laughs> because I don't, I'm real proponent of free speech in general, and for all of us to just be talking and listening to each other. And there's is a lot of the ego game going on, like people fighting to talk, um, depending on the room. Like every room is different. But ultimately, I think for people to be to be sharing is is really is a really good thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, offline, perhaps what you can do is help me by getting me into some conversation. Invite me in, and we'll do a thing, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing too is like you can create your own thing and and make it what, what you want. <laughs> don't want well then you, you don't have to <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have such resistance when he was when christian and i were having this conversation a couple weeks ago and he's like duncan invited me i'm gonna get on and blah 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 i'm like i feel like this is multi-level marketing and then i looked at duncan's profile and it said multi-level marketing expert i'm like see he gets it <laughs> he gets what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's like all of the social media I have a lot of resistance for it in general. Um, but this particular one is, is, is one I You're like more appreciating. Than I was going to ask yeah. in that same vein, are you teaching online? I am not personally teaching online, but I'm helping a lot of other people to teach online right now. Yeah. Okay. And those are the integral yogis. Yeah. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding of integral yoga and what Swami Satchidananda taught was that between postures, you would do a little shavasana, right? Mm, yeah, a few shavasanas throughout the the whole the whole class. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I do that when I teach too. Less sometimes we lay down fully, but more of it's like coming out of a posture and marinating before going to the next one. Yeah, that's it. He also really emphasized like the final deep relaxation yes. uh, and meditation. And he would say, you know, if you're short on time, you can cut cut out some asana, but never skip the uh, deep relaxation, pranayama, breath work, and meditation. Amen. Exactly. Exactly. Do not skip that. That's the practice. Hmm. The asanas are just the prep work to get to that part. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciated this so much. Really, really wonderful to be in such a um, broad and deep conversation with you. Me too. Thanks so much, Rada. You're welcome. 